0: A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. So I thought to come in here and start this episode with an alarming statistic on the rate of sexual abuse amongst children with special needs and disabilities. I thought you all would pay more attention if I did. But after about a four-minute search in a variety of resources reiterating how difficult it is to get an accurate statistic, I realized you all don't need me to stun you into being attentive audience members. I don't think you need me to shock you into realizing that our children with various challenges, special needs, and disabilities are at a higher risk for being the victims of sexual abuse. We know this. But it is helpful to understand the reasons behind why our children are at a higher risk so that we may then better educate ourselves on how to protect them and then hopefully be successful at that. So thankfully, to help us with that, I was able to speak with Lindsay Strickland from Worth the Conversation. She has a professional background in victim advocacy for children and families of sexual abuse, along with community education and prevention. After adopting her son with Down syndrome, Lindsay realized she needed new ways to advocate and educate. She spent some time researching and eventually created the site Worth the the conversation. Worth the Conversation is dedicated to, quote, equipping the Down Syndrome community to prevent child sexual abuse through education and empowerment. To be clear, the conversation we had for this podcast applies to children of all needs, however unique and challenging. We began our conversation clarifying what sexual abuse may look like. I certainly learned something new about that, or at least had my eyes open to some of the things that I hadn't really thought about. Lindsay went over some of the big risk factors for our children and then helped walk me through some of the prevention strategies she shares. All of this information and more can be found on her website at worththeconversation.org. We also discussed what signs to watch out for that may be the result of abuse, and what actions to take if you suspect anything. We talked about who our allies are. Talking about child sexual abuse is not an easy conversation to have, but it is one of the most important ones to have. Because of the topic alone, I will add a trigger warning to this introduction. That being said, we don't discuss any particular cases or go into details, but please use your own discretion if this topic is one that is sensitive for you or may be trauma-inducing. Along with that, know that in this conversation we use words like vagina, penis, even masturbation, and I realize that we were not all raised in households where people felt comfortable using these words. But these words are important words to say, to teach our children. Now, if you disagree with that or can't think of why that would be important, then please stay and listen. Take this opportunity to educate yourself on this topic so that you may be able to help the children in your life be safer. They are absolutely worth this conversation.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Lindsay Strickland, I live in Seattle with uh, my husband and four children, Uh, my girls are 12 and 10, and my boys are both eight, Um, and one of my sons came to us um, through adoption when he was three, our son Ben, um, who has Down syndrome, And so my professional background is in victims advocacy, specifically working with um, children and families who have had a disclosure of sexual abuse. And so I would work with um, the families to help them navigate the court systems, therapeutic interventions, law enforcement, all of the really, really hard and overwhelming stuff when there's a disclosure of abuse. Um, And then I would also do community education. So prevention education in schools, churches, you know, youth, youth serving organizations. Um, So when we adopted our son, Ben, who has Down syndrome, um, I just, I knew that all the strategies and the educational materials that I was familiar with um, just probably weren't going to work that well for him. A lot of them were really abstract concepts. A lot of them involved, um, using your voice and telling. And Ben, who is now eight is still pretty much nonverbal. I mean, he communicates, but, um, not in the way that, uh, that he could tell necessarily if something were to happen to him. So that's when I, um, started researching to see what was out there. And then, uh, of course, when you ask the questions and want to get the answers, you have to sometimes provide the answers. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so uh, through, gosh, it was at least a year of just digging through what's out there and putting some stuff together. um, I launched Worth the Conversation.
0: I got from your website your—I don't know if you say it's your mission—but that you are equipping the Down syndrome community to prevent child sexual abuse through education and empowerment, and which is a very um, incredibly noble cause, and uh, one I'm, you know, sure is very rewarding and very trying at times. On levels I can't even imagine. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I just wanted to clarify, and maybe I'm wrong, but because this uh, this podcast does um, speak to the broader special needs community that I feel like a lot of these things that we could talk about, you know, could apply to a variety of kids with special needs. So
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My um, focus, just because I I had to pick a focus, right. Yeah. <laughs> and try to make a big difference in a, in a smaller place um, was down syndrome, but really, um, you know, so many of these things apply to all children and um, especially any child with developmental delays or intellectual disabilities for sure. But I think all parents can take something away from this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure in case anybody was like, "Well, I don't know if I'll listen," because you know, just no, stay, right. listen this conversation. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, worth
1: it. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, well, okay, good. So I thought um, we could start with just kind of the foundation of what uh, sexual abuse is. I mean, I know that everybody, right? everybody knows. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like everybody knows. But I was reading the description on your website. Um, and so I thought, you know, it was interesting. So the the first sign says sexual abuse involves any sexual activity with a child where consent is not or cannot be given. And then it kind of goes into a variety of ways that this could look. And one of the things that that I hadn't thought about was even just um, forcing a child to watch Something or or you know, it doesn't always have to be like touching or hands-on. So um I just wanted wondered if before we move ahead, if there was anything that you wanted to clarify for people or something that you think people often overlook that
1: sure. So yeah, when people hear sexual abuse um or sexual assault, oftentimes um our minds do jump to thinking about rape um or something along those lines. But um, while that is what we're talking about. Um, Often, especially with younger children, um, like you mentioned, it is something like exposing a child to pornography, or um, an adult, or or even an older child, um, having a child watch them masturbate, or um, just simply exposing themselves. And really, um, those uh, initial things which are a very big deal. Um, but the initial things, even uh, like somebody inappropriately touching a child in a sexual manner, um, something that's violating their boundaries, um, that that's the beginning of uh, steps leading to further abuse as well, like just trying to desensitize a child. So I'm glad you brought that up, that we are, when we talk about sexual abuse, we're talking about a wide range of things.
0: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to to know and to clarify and I'm speaking to some of my friends who have had abuse in their childhood you know they they talk about those scenarios of that kind of led up to it that Mm -hmm. it's not always a big traumatic event like there are all the things that that can really go along with that so oh I just want to also point out to the people who are listening that all of this is on your website worth the conversation.com some of the risk factors I wanted to go over and just kind of talk about a little bit more. So um, I think the first one, the limited verbal communication and vocabulary, this brought to mind something that that I feel like is new kind of in the, in the big conversation for, for everybody, you know, but like not giving, like calling things what they are by like the names that people mm-hmm. use. I have three daughters and I say yoni instead of vagina because somewhere in my feminist teachings I read that vagina was taken from a Roman word that meant sheath for your sword. And you know, so and, uh-huh. but so since then, um, I've you know I've learned that like, well, they also need to know that it's called a vagina. So things like that. Um mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. So that kind of brought to mind about you know how important the words that we use are. But then sure. mm-hmm. like like you are saying here, and I'll let you explain it further. Sometimes there's not even the words.
1: A risk factor for children who aren't very verbal or are nonverbal would be that they can't tell necessarily. And so like you were saying, so counteracting that with giving them information, I think so often um, that when a child can't necessarily speak clearly, sometimes we're not inclined to give them um, the information about their bodies. And so I encourage parents to, um, yeah, give them as much information as possible and don't leave out their private parts, you know, and using the anatomically correct names for them. Um, and that also helps take away any feelings of shame too, and lets them know it's just another part of your body that you can talk about. Um, so yeah, you're right. So there are the risk factors and then that bridges into some of the prevention strategies, but, um, some of the other risk factors are that children with disabilities are often so reliant on caregivers, and that just naturally exposes them. Well, it, it builds a trust because they, they need to get so many of their needs met through adult caregivers. And then also it can be desensitizing. You know, a typically developing child doesn't necessarily have all of these adults in their life who are helping them with uh, toileting Um, with physical therapy, you know, all sorts of um, medical interventions where there's just a lot of touch. And we do need our children to cooperate for those things. And so there is a um, conditioned compliance um, to to go along with what adults are telling you to do. Um, So that definitely is a big risk factor. And then like we just talked about, there can be a lack of body awareness And that might be um, depending on a parent's comfort level um, with talking about private parts. Mm -hmm. Um, And like your example, it wasn't a lack of um, of feeling comfortable with it,
0: but- (laughs) I was gonna (laughs) revolutionize.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, and that's the thing. And I think it's important to point out that these are all, um, as we're talking today, I want people to think through- that this is more about setting a healthy foundation. It's not a right and wrong, or there's not just one way to do it. So I think that's really important to think about your family culture and um, just integrate some of these um, strategies into that too. So I think that's important to say too. Yeah. You know, another thing, our children are frequently separated from um, peers and having, um, being in more isolated situations uh, puts them more at risk. And then, um, this isn't true for all children with intellectual disabilities, um, but it's certainly common in the Down syndrome community, is a strong desire for attention, Mm -hmm. and and that can just make our kids so vulnerable, you know, when they'll happily do anything for attention. And then there's also this underlying societal expectation that um, children with intellectual disabilities are... Maybe just happy going along with anything there are sort of lack there are fewer boundaries, maybe people feel a little more entitled to get a hug from this cute little kid, you mm-hmm. know, without thinking, is this age appropriate? Would I do this with another ten year old this age um and so they're just some of those societal things as well, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, yeah, that one and the one that really stood out to me was the conditioned compliance Mm. and because like you said it is so true that we are you know we have to teach our kids to to have a certain level of compliance with these adults that they don't know who are touching them moving their bodies you know showing them things that you know if any other adult would be doing that it wouldn't be okay so yeah so how like how can we help them understand the difference
1: sure um I think this (laughs) falls into, um, in my seven strategies, which there are a million strategies, but you have to bring it down, (laughs) make it digestible and (laughs) practical. Um, I think this would fall under boundaries and um, just helping our children understand that they have a right to boundaries. And um, an an example would be um, when you're going to the doctor, you're going to physical therapy, Talking to them about what's going to happen, even if you're not so sure it's sinking in, but just letting them know um, you know, we're going to go see so and so and they're going to help you um, on the bouncy ball and taking your steps. And, you know, or when you have a babysitter, um, so and so is going to help with your diaper changing today. And with schooling or camps, um, letting your child know up front, you know, Mrs. Jones is the one who helps you with the bathroom really what this is doing is helping is giving your child some um, autonomy over their body, giving them some control and letting them know what to expect. And so then maybe if um, something happens that's out of the ordinary, that maybe that can help set off some internal uh, red flags for them. And so really just giving them information, more information than you would even think is necessary. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and kind of like an accountability as well. If you're, if you're very clear mm-hmm. on who will be helping them and, and, you know, potentially touching them, you know, then there's an accountability there of like, well, it was this, it was this person. It was supposed to be that person. And
1: you're right. And the accountability too, and letting the people who are, cause we need these teams of people. I mean, they're so important. I rely on my team, you know, to help with them. Um, that's, that's how we have to do this and how we want to do this. You know, we want a team of people who care about our kids um, surrounding us and surrounding them, but yeah, also being very clear, you know, with the adults in your child's life of this is who I said is going to help him with the potty today. Um, so, so setting that accountability up right from the beginning.
0: Yeah. yeah. Do you want to just go through your, your seven preventative strategies? So people are sure, clear. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah okay. I can. So we, um, so body awareness is a big one, which we've talked a little bit about. Um, and really, that's just being matter of fact with your child about their bodies, teaching them the names for their private parts, um, you know, and ask your pediatrician if you have questions about what is normal, healthy sexual development. I mean, that's what they're there for. So if you have a question about something, um, definitely don't be afraid to ask your pediatrician. And um, when you are, as the parent, are more equipped with what healthy um, sexual development is, then that also gives you the confidence to talk to your kids about it. You know, And we talked about establishing boundaries. <laughs> um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, another piece of that is not forcing your child to give physical affection. And right. I have found myself doing this for sure.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. We all do it. We all Yeah. Do it. Yeah.
1: Cause goodness, my son is just the cutest thing. Everybody loves him. And I think part of me somewhere feels like this is something that he ha he does have to give, you know, his joy he has to get, he, he has this to offer the world. And, um, And there are times I've said, oh, give, go give so-and-so a hug. And he, and I can see his body language. He doesn't want to. And so it's so important to honor that and let your child know that they do have a say over um, who they give affection to. And they Mm -hmm. can tell somebody to stop if they don't want that. Um, And Mm -hmm. then also age appropriate personal space. So um, thinking through, you know, Would a 10-year-old sit on their teacher's lap? Probably not. And so just really reinforcing those kind of boundaries and not giving children with intellectual disabilities a pass, um, necessarily, or uh, the adults a pass, um, to treat them (laughs) like, like they're (laughs) toddlers, you know? And I, I, you know, talking to other parents and I found with my son that our kids can totally arise to the occasion. And then, um, ask about policies. This can be a hard one. I just had to do it this past weekend. My oldest daughter is joining a new soccer club and they had some very clear policies about um, like disputes about the (laughs) sports, but they had no policies about what to do if there are suspicions of sexual misconduct. And so it all, it will always feel a little awkward for me to have to ask these questions, um, to people who I, um, I know are there to help our kids, but it is so important. It is so, so important to ask about policies. Yeah. So asking how, uh, suspicions of sexual misconduct are handled right away is the number one thing you can do asking about, um, Bathroom policies, um, if there are any policies regarding um, one-on-one time between adults and children. And I've really found that um, organizations are really, if they haven't thought about it, then that makes them think about it. Mm -hmm. And they
0: ultimately are um, really open. That's not something that I would have thought about asking about policies. I wouldn't have thought to start there. So I think that's Mm -hmm. good for people to hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even um, uh, a preschool that, that we were at, I, they didn't have a bathroom policy and it kind of threw me off that, that there was no, you know, that they hadn't even thought twice about an adult being one-on-one behind a closed door with a child.
0: Yeah. it's interesting that, that they wouldn't even think about that, but I don't know yeah. that I would have either, but you would, but I've, I've had to do the 4-H training because I, I because I do field trips at my kid's school. And that's like, every year we've got to go through the same training about, you know, not being alone with a child in a bathroom and, and all of that stuff. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure if you were ahead of the preschool, you probably would have thought about that. I yeah. <laughs> would hope so. Yeah. So yeah, but it wasn't, you know, there was no ill intention behind it, um, right. but now they have a policy.
0: <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And, you know, at the beginning, I talked about um, the reason I started with the conversation was to, was because so many of the strategies in education I saw out there relied on the child protecting themselves and relied on the child telling or um, just so um, child focused. Right. When really for all children um, and especially more vulnerable children, um this is about adults you know recognizing uh red flags for abuse and stepping in and not something that should be the responsibility of the child and so a big piece of that is understanding who perpetrators are and who are the abusers Um, and, you know, it's easy to think that it is a stranger or, you know, something that like that that's portrayed in media um, or that gets maybe the most attention on the news. But really, um, it's not strangers. Um, statistics vary, but anywhere between 90 to 95, I think I've even seen 99% of abusers are someone that the family and child already know and likely already trust. So,
0: you know, these are,
1: yeah, yeah. Somebody likely already, I even saw an article today about, um, you know, using the, why is it escaping me? The offender, the online, offender listings
0: yeah uh, it's escaping me but yeah
1: <laughs> yeah and um and I've certainly been on those you know <laughs> I do like to know who the convicted sex offenders are around me mm-hmm. um and sure that's certainly something to look through and be aware of but I think it can give a false sense of security and you know abusers use um they work really hard to earn the trust of a family and a child and go through what I, I would think most listeners are familiar with the term grooming. Um, yes. yeah. and, and, you know, just slowly desensitizing a child, um, trying to see what they can get away with, seeing if a child will keep a secret. And as I'm saying this, I, I imagine that you'll give somewhat of a trickle warning, but this is something that... Um, sexual abuse is so common. And I know that so many of your listeners will probably totally understand um, whether they've experienced something themselves or have somebody they love who've experienced this. So I do have um, resources on the website if somebody wants to reach out to get more help. So just wanted to say that real quick as we're talking about um, abusers.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for saying that.
1: But in general, these are people who are going to push boundaries and work really hard to get a child into an isolated situation. And so I would say, you know, always trust your guts. You want adults who are on your team to help your child, not somebody. Of course, we really value these um, special relationships that our kids have with other adults or older children. But if somebody is being disrespectful of your boundaries and trying to isolate your child, then that would most definitely be a red flag.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Another big one, and this goes along with, you know, abusers trying to isolate children and, and part of the grooming process being keeping secrets Is just to not do secrets. Like, just don't have secrets be part of your family culture. In our home, we use surprises instead. You know, we talk about Mm -hmm. secrets can hurt somebody's feelings. Secrets are something that might make you feel sad or yucky. But surprises, like, that's something that's exciting that you're going to end up sharing. Um, It's going to be fun. It's going to make the other person happy. Mm -hmm. Um, So just, completely taking away that burden of secrets and just knowing that it's just not something that you do. Now there is privacy, you know, and and teaching privacy is very important and reinforcing privacy, but yeah, there's just no need for secrets. You can, you can use surprises.
0: I really like that, that clarification between the two, because I think about, you know, before somebody's birthday, if, if we get a gift and you know, one of the kids knows it and we're like, no, don't tell them it's a secret. Mm-hmm. And that must be really confusing because then we also teach like, no, you can't have secrets. So mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. how you've, have you worked, how you have worked around that. And <laughs> definitely that surprises are something that will eventually be told. Yeah. 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 I I like that.
1: Well, goodness. I feel like I've wrapped a lot of stuff into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> There's so much. Yeah. Well, yeah. um, if you, oh, one of the other ones that I saw was um, having, you know, having other eyes on your, on your child, getting yeah, kind of other yeah. adults on your team. And it made me think about, you know, my daughter's disorder, one of the things, one of the big challenges is this this kind of obsession with eating this this insatiable appetite and so mm-hmm. you know food has to be really controlled and one of the ways that we manage that is if we are at a party or a gathering where there's a lot of food like all of the adults in her life know and they're aware and so they know to keep an eye on her and they know to kind of like look out for that and so I saw that and it just made me think about that that how important it is because there have been plenty of times that my, that you know, it really helped my daughter to have other adults in her life to help keep her safe. And so, um, I appreciate that too, that, you know, we are all let's look out for the kids around us and really be on it, especially if we have a child who is perhaps more susceptible to abuse.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's a hard thing to talk about, but educating the people around you yeah, that's how you build your team, you know, and, and making other adults aware of, a, of your child's vulnerability will ultimately, yeah, ultimately keep them safe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you speak to the question of what are some signs that parents should look for that may indicate that mm-hmm. something is that some abuse is happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So Uh, going back to talking to your pediatrician about healthy sexual development, I think sort of having a general understanding of what might be normal behavior, um, and certainly a child, um, exploring their private parts is a very normal part of healthy sexual development, but, um, a child who can't be redirected from that, or it may become an obsessive behavior, um, that could be an indicator of something has happened. Certainly um, any sort of genital irritation or new rashes um, would be something that you would want to get checked out. That's not completely uncommon. You know, any of us who have had kids (laughs) have dealt with a diaper rash, especially kids who have been in diapers a long time. But um, anything that's out of the ordinary, for sure. One that is, it's hard to differentiate, but I think it's important to mention is if your child suddenly doesn't want to go somewhere that they usually would love. If they're suddenly not wanting to go to daycare and just um, really suddenly have strong feelings about being, not wanting to be around certain people, definitely take their behavior seriously and and try to think through the situation and who they're around and, and what, could be causing it. Any, any type of um, new sexual knowledge, something that is just too, um, they're too young to know, something that uh, maybe an older child or an adult has been teaching them, um, that is certainly a red flag. And, and possibly, like we mentioned earlier, you know, um, possibly being exposed to pornography mm-hmm. as well, um, if you're seeing new behaviors or a new type of knowledge. Um, and you're not sure where it came from. And um, if you are worried about any of these things, certainly your pediatrician is a, a good first point of contact. This feels like a scary step. And you might feel like you're jumping to getting law enforcement involved. But you can always call. Um, it's, it's very important to get a third party involved. If you have suspicions about a specific person, call social services child protective services it's called different things in different states and you can just present them with a scenario um, without giving names and ask them if this is something that needs to be investigated because it's so important to get people who understand how to collect the information and do it in a way that keeps your child safe and do it in the least traumatizing way Um, so you can always call your local Child Protective Services.
0: I like that clarification that, you know, if you feel more comfortable starting with this scenario without names rather than accusing somebody, but even just getting that, that third party, that advice starting there.
1: Yeah, because it feels scary, especially, um, you know, people feel very much like they don't want to um, an, accuse an innocent person. But really the most important thing is to think about the child and the safety of the child. Um, always be thinking about the victim and, um, and let the professionals, you know, figure out, figure out what's going on. Um, and I do have some um, hotlines and I, I believe you've shared similar um, hotlines with your audience in the past um, of, of places that you can call just to mm. run a situation by them. Cause sometimes it just helps to talk to somebody else.
0: Do you have like a go to hotline that you recommend?
1: Oh, goodness, I wouldn't know the number off the top of my head, but um, well, I the, can look it uh, up. <laughs> yeah, um, for missing and exploited children, they have a great hotline, and then another really wonderful resource that has basically everything <laughs> is um, it's called Darkness to Light, and um, that's d2l.org. And you can find anything relating to this um, on their website.
0: So my next question is maybe along the lines of this last one, but it feels like an important one because I imagine if you get into this scenario, it can be um, really scary. Who are the allies in a situation of abuse? So Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking like if it's say somebody from the school, I imagine that it you know going to the school administrators would be maybe not he would want to go to first although that might be who people would think to go to first but um
1: unfortunately so many organizations and institutions are quick to protect themselves and their own interests to begin with so really it is so important to um to go straight to Child Protective Services if you have suspicions of abuse and and let them handle it. Let them figure out the details. I think so often people feel like they need to have a case to present and have the evidence and the proof right up front. And that is not the case at all. In fact, you shouldn't do that. Don't ever feel like you have to be ready to prosecute a case (laughs) before sharing it that that's not your job and your job is to, to let the authorities know when you have a suspicion and certainly in that process, keep your child safe, keep them away from anyone you have suspicions about, but um, certainly always, yeah, get that, get that third protective party involved.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. And, and I like the, the clarification of don't wait until you have a case. Mm-hmm. If you're suspicious you want to get in there you want to figure it out because you don't want it to go any further than maybe it already has yeah yeah okay so I have one more question (laughs) um is is it was there anything that you feel like you wanted to to say before um like as far as like preventative strategies or
1: I feel like this is a pretty good overview though barely Mm -hmm. you know barely scratches the surface, (laughs) but hopefully it gets people thinking, you know, and, um, and thinking about the way some of these prevention strategies do fit into your family culture. Like you said, maybe little things that you hadn't thought about um, that can make a big difference, like asking about policies or, Mm -hmm. you know, sharing with the people around you so that there are more um, protective eyes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, being open with your children about their bodies and, and talking mm-hmm. about them and giving them yeah. the vocabulary. That's so important. I read um, this little like story somewhere on Facebook kind of arguing to the point that, you know, this, um, you know, student came to school and said to the teacher, you know, something like my uncle um, shared cookies or touch my cookies or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. the teacher didn't catch it because the word was cookies. And then you know, yep. she found out, um yeah. yeah, you get the point. Like I don't have the, all the details right, but I just remember it was the word cookies and like the, the misinterpretation of that and how Yeah. Well,
1: and it's hard it's hard for everybody involved to know exactly what the child's talking about. So of course a teacher might miss um something like that. The mm-hmm. child's so instantly sharing their story of abuse, yeah, without the language to do so. <laughs> it's it's hard for for people to catch it. And it's also hard to prosecute when it is pretty clear that the child's talking about sexual abuse that, you know, when children don't have um, the correct language to use it, it just makes prosecution harder as well.
0: Yeah, but, okay, so, so yeah. don't be afraid to teach them words like vagina and penis.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and if you didn't grow up that way, um, I didn't grow up with that. It can take a little bit of practice you know, but, but also remembering it's just another body part, right? You know? It's a body part that we keep private, but it's, it's just another body part. It's,
0: mm-hmm. it's, yeah. So I do want to ask, and I don't know if, if you have an answer to this, and I imagine that having a response or any kind of comfort for a parent who is maybe going through this is not something mm-hmm. that can really be distilled down into some lines on a podcast, but Um, If, Mm -hmm. if so, do you have any advice or, excuse me, do you have any advice or words of comfort or encouragement for parents who are experiencing this?
1: Well, it is, I mean, despite abuse, unfortunately being, you know, a public health crisis, it's still, um, it's something that feels so isolating. People can feel so much shame surrounding this. I would really, really encourage parents and families to reach out to their local sexual assault crisis centers, and they might be able to find a parent support group through that. Also, um, child advocacy centers. There are uh, There's a national organization that has child advocacy centers all over the country, And um, they have wonderful, supportive advocates and therapists who can help walk a family through this. So I think such an isolating, scary experience, but you really are not alone. And so so I would really encourage people to reach out to those organizations in their community and and try to get connected with other families um, who are going through something similar.